Next week, November 1st, we will be observing the Lord's table, so I invite you to be here for that. And then on November 8th, we uh, have a baptismal service planned. We have two candidates for uh, baptism that will be uh, will be baptized on that day. So uh, we uh, invite you to uh, join us. That will be during the 11 o'clock service. I uh, invite you to join us for, uh, for that. Uh, we have a thank you card from Gary uh, Dunham. Uh, Gary had a, a stay in the hospital uh, this past uh, weekend, uh, last weekend, due to um, uh, surgery that did not go as planned. And we thank God that uh, he was uh, did okay. They took care of him, and he is here today with us. And so we are thankful, and he is thankful, and wanted to give thanks for your cards, visits, your food, and most of all, your prayers. And uh, just confessing his trust in the Lord during this time, and we give thanks uh, for that. Well, today, Phil and Becky uh, McDonald uh, are with us. Phil and Becky are, are missionaries, and we've supported them for, for many years now. Uh, they both lead uh, two uh, different uh, ministries. Uh, this morning, uh, during our 9 and 11 o'clock service, Phil is going to uh, be sharing from God's Word. Uh, Phil is the president of Leader Empowerment and Development Incorporated, or for short, LEAD, L-E-A-D. Uh, they work in 38 countries to help set up or empower more than 150 overseas development projects, projects, things like hospitals, clinics, orphanages, safe houses, community centers, schools, businesses, farms, plantations, and factories. Uh, Phil has done many other things in his life, as well as how he's an author, he's a professor, he's been a missionary in other, other ways uh, previous to this. And uh, we're thankful that he and Becky are with us today. So uh, before he comes, would you stand with me? And we will ask God's blessing on the service and on our church and on Phil as he opens God's word for us. Father, uh, we give thanks uh, this morning that uh, we can come to this place and to worship you. Father, we recognize that you are the only one who is worthy of our worship. And so today we, uh, we want to do just that. And so, Father, as the word of God is open to us, may our hearts be drawn to you. May our eyes be lifted up to you, to see you, to worship you. Father, we ask for your help for uh, Phil as he shares. Thank you uh, for bringing them here. Thank you for what they are doing around the world. And we ask for uh, your blessing. We pray your blessing on our church and our church family. You know the number of needs that uh, we have today, both physically, spiritually, emotionally, Things going on in the life of our church. We're asking for your intervention and your help. God, we uh, give thanks for how you have and how you will. We trust you. We commit, commit ourselves to you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. And would you help me give a warm welcome to Phil McDonald. Thank you and good morning. Bangladesh, this little country between India and Burma. Used to be called East Pakistan. How are we doing here? Okay. I remember the time living in Bangladesh when a, a mob attacked our Christian village. And uh, it was on a Friday during, after the Friday prayers in an Islamic country, Bangladesh, 90% Islamic. And coming across the rice paddy was a mob of some angry Muslims because some Muslims had become Christians. 
And as they came towards the Christian village, a group of young guys were running past the home of our principal of our small school there. And they said, Schoolmaster Shive, you got to run into the jungle because the mob's coming for you. They're coming for the church leaders. And he says, Where? I'm from the city. I don't know where to run. He had a master, two master's degrees and a bachelor's degree. He'd never been in the jungle. And they said, Just run that way. And he went. And he's running and running. He's looking, Where, where am I going to hide? Where am I going to hide? And, and he got this idea of submerging himself in this murky creek. And he broke off a reed. Had been, it was hollow, and he used it like a snorkel. And he stayed underwater for four hours until the mob dispersed, wondering when it was safe to come up. Meanwhile, his wife, Gita, my wife's playmate growing up, because my wife grew up in that particular mission compound near there. She stayed behind, and as the mob came, they're trying to burn her house down, and she's throwing water on it, and they're getting mad at her, and they say, we're trying to burn your house down. She says, no, you can't burn my house down. Plucky little thing. She says, no, and so they start beating her, and uh, finally they left her alone. Now, I need to explain something culturally right here, because you're wondering, are they guys, are they the scaredy cats and the women, the brave ones? Well, in Islam, women are protected. They have this concept of purda. And the women knew they wouldn't get killed. They did get beat up, but they didn't get killed. The men, they would kill. Afterwards, we heard the story of Monique and Gita telling us what happened. And later, my wife said to me, she goes, if it ever comes to the point where you have to run in the jungle and I have to stay behind and get beaten for protecting our house, you might as well just keep on running and never come back. <laughs> well, we've been married 43 years, four months and 28 days, and uh, she, every day is a gift. She's amazing. Many of you know her as the founder uh, and president of Women at Risk. You'll hear from her in the next hour. Um, as a couple, we've been together in international ministry for 37 years. It's hard to believe. We travel a lot, of course, and I get to ask these questions. One question I usually get is, where are you going? I'm sitting next to somebody in a plane, and I'm saying, well, I'm, I'm going to Uganda. Oh, uh, you going from safari for a vacation? Uh, no, I'm going for work. Oh. What do you do? It's always the next question. Well, I do humanitarian projects and aid projects, and I'm not quite sure where they are spiritually when I first sit down next to somebody. And they say, what kind of projects? Well, hospitals, clinics, orphanages, schools, you know, whatever, whatever they need. And uh, so how do you get in this line of work? That's the next question, usually. Well, after getting a PhD at Michigan State in international planning and development, um, I started out as a professor, but now I help social entrepreneurs um, set up businesses over there. They said, I bet you have some exciting stories. I said, oh, yeah, I've lived in unreal life. It's uh, stalked by lions, charged by the rhinos, chased by pirates, fled riots and mobs with our kids in tow. I worked in war zones, dealt with rebel soldiers. That's always interesting. Uh, lived through coup d'etats, you know, stuff that happens in unpredictable environments. You know, right now we're kind of living in an unpredictable environment. In America, it's always been very predictable until 2020. And now we're all of a sudden realizing, we don't know what's coming next. I thought this thing was supposed to be over into May. And here it is. And now we're talking about a second wave. And this predict unpredictability, that's what we've lived with for 37 years overseas. Because in the developing world, it's very unstable, politically, economically, Weather-wise, climate-wise, you never know what's going to happen. So you get a little taste of our world in 2020. 
And we're all anxious for it to be over, but I'm still not sure about 2021. We'll see. Well, the word empower, what, is that? what does that mean? It means to equip. It means to enable. It means to uplift, supply, help people out, and empower them, make them be capable of doing it themselves. And so when I go into a country and work with a people group, people say, how do you do what you do? Well, we, first thing, we sit down. If it's, a, if it's a group, it could be a church group, be a group of business people, we sit down and we look and say, I ask them, what are your needs? We do a needs assessment. What isn't being met? What gap is there that uh, you really have a need for? And it differs, differs different between uh, cultures and even within the same country. And, but when I sit down and ask them these, I look for four different categories of need. The first category is spiritual. I mean, you know, humanitarian work's great. We're not just do-gooders here. It's all about the kingdom. That's why we're doing it. Uh, we're about evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. And then that verse in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God's building his church all over the world. We just get the benefit of seeing what's happening right now. Someday we'll all get to see the benefit of what happened right now around the world in heaven. We'll have a long time to, to see and meet the people we know. Then there's the, the another category I look at it like what are their intellectual needs? Their, their learning needs. That can be Bible translations. We've done schools, everything from pre-kindergarten all the way up to the doctoral level. Uh, I'm proud of our organization. We've been able to sponsor 40 pastors or church leaders in the last 16 years to get master's and doctor's degrees around the world. Then there's the third category, which is kind of the social category. Um, pure religion before God is the care for orphans and widows, according to James chapter 1, 27. Widow and orphan care, medical care, disaster relief, COVID has caused us to do this relief this year. Normally, we'd do long-term development projects. There's so many relief agencies out there, and a lot of money flows in disaster zones. But now we've got the whole world in the pandemic. What do we do? And we have all these overseas field partners, our locals over there who we work with, have worked with for years, and many of them were struggling because their country shut down. Now, it's interesting, the people we helped with gardens and farms and plantations where they can grow their own food, cisterns to collect rainwater for, uh, during the dry season so they can still uh, drip irrigate their gardens and they can water their goats and they could, they could feed themselves. It was our partners in the cities when there was lockdown, and then the markets closed, and they couldn't get food. And we had people, I think of this group of uh, widows in, in Uganda, many of them on HIV drugs, um, and they, uh, they had to take HIV drugs on empty stomachs. That's hard enough on a full stomach. And they wrote to me and said, we, we need help. We've got people starving to death. Same time in Bangladesh, we got people writing us, help us, we got people who are going to starve to death in two weeks. What do you do? You stop and you raise money for relief. Actually, we didn't raise it. We, on faith, just started sending money out for relief and then wrote and people uh, filled our relief coffers. We still have a need for relief because there's still a lot of places hurting around the world. So we looked at the spiritual, the intellectual, and the social categories, a fourth category, and that's the economic and I like this verse in 1 Thessalonians 4.11. I'm going to read it to you. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says, Paul's saying to the church of Thessalonica, Make it your ambition 
to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Dependent on anybody. I'm here to say that in the last 150 years of mission work and, and, and the foreign aid of our Western rich countries has created this gigantic welfare system around the world where people in poor, low-income countries have to depend on money from the outside for survival. And that's a horrible thing because they lose their dignity, it creates jealousy. I could just tell you story after story about that, and that's what's bothered us. We don't like handouts. People who get handouts don't like handouts. They want to hand up. They want to be empowered. They want to be helped. And so that's uh, one of the main emphasis we've done. Um, so I want to just give you some case studies, some illustrations of of all these four categories, what does that look like? I could tell you. I want to show you through a story. You know, Jesus loved telling stories because stories have a way of resonating with people. So let's start with the spiritual one. One of my first projects as, as a young missionary over 30, 33 years ago was helping a man in Bangladesh start a school. Now, this man had three master's degrees and an earned doctorate in the United States. And he was the one in ten back in the 80s that went back to his own country, didn't stay here. He went back and he had this dream of starting a graduate school, the first one in Bangladesh, a seminary that would give master's degrees to, to his people. And all that education, no one ever taught him how to start a school. So that just happened to be my, one of my emphases at uh, Michigan State. He writes me and he says, uh, can you help me do that? Long story short, we moved back to Bangladesh. We'd been in the Philippines, but we moved back to Bangladesh, and uh, I helped him start this school. And we really worked well together because I was kind of the, the, the visionary, the planner, and he was the, the accounting background. He was the detail guy, right? He knows how to do all the details and logistics and make it all happen. Long story short, I had to leave after our first term there because of our second term there because of our kids' health problems. And, on his own. Since then, he's not only had a seminary, he started a Bible college. Uh, he's set up 15 primary schools, and he's planted 26 churches with the graduates from his Bible college all over Bangladesh. Until COVID hit, he had a full-time building crew that just went around Bangladesh building churches. That's how God's been blessing out there. The interesting thing about Dr. John, he's kind of like the Billy Graham of Bangladesh. Those of you who remember Billy Graham. Dr. John was a Greek professor, an accounting background, language professor, uh, very smart. And so he had the mind of a scholar, but he had the heart of evangelist. You ought to hear him preach in Bangladesh, in Bengali. It's just, it's just phenomenal preaching. It reminds you of Billy Graham. That old-fashioned, forceful preaching and challenge people. People get saved. It's just incredible. I feel like I've gone back in a time where, in fact, last year, at this time, last week, a year ago, I was in Bangladesh, part of his revival meetings in his hometown. We had several hundred people come. The problem there was uh, Al-Qaeda and ISIS didn't like the fact that we were having these meetings, and so they already put the word out there we were going to have some kind of terrorist attack. The government kind of freaked out, and so they just... They just lined our whole area around with soldiers, military, and then we had plainclothes 
special detectives inside the congregation. It was kind of interesting to watch because as I'm looking at them, I could always tell who the believers were and who, who they weren't because they're hearing the gospel and they're getting all, you know, kind of antsy-like because they're coming under conviction because they're getting preached at every day for three days, all day long, you know. It was, it was wonderful. Result of that, 51 Muslims and Hindus came to Christ last year. Uh, that kind of, that's why we do what we do. The schools he's done, it's great. Kids need an education. Bible college, seminary, great. But every year he has, until this year. You know what he did? He's 72 years old, 73 years old. One of the young people in his church said, uh, Dr. Shirkar, we're going we're gonna to put you on Zoom. He goes, what? Zoom. And you can preach in Bengali, and Bengalis all over the world can Zoom in on you and listen to you. And so that's what he's been doing all this time. Since COVID hit, he's been preaching to a worldwide audience. It's fantastic. The second category, the intellectual one. When I was teaching at BBC in the seminary part-time, I had two students from Burma, northern Burma, sharp guys. One was the president of Bible college out there, and the other one was the assistant to president, a vice president. And they... When I took over this ministry back 16 years ago, they invited me to come out and do a needs assessment and look. And uh, we looked and we started thinking of the ways we could help them. I came back. I get this phone call from him. He says, you know, when we were in the States, I was out at Tacoma, Washington at that seminary, and I was at BBC. Uh, for five years, my kids went to American schools. They're fluent in English. They didn't go to Burmese schools. So my wife's been homeschooling them with a Becca. And the problem is, is we got all our neighbors and our relatives, they want their kids to be homeschooled. But this won't be homeschooled, it's going to be a school. So they want to start a school. And how, how do you start a school? I said, well, let me ask you first question. How are you going to pay for that? Well, he says, the church association doesn't have any money. They can't even pay the headquarters staff. Okay, so that's not really a solution. Do you have any money? No. You ever heard of a charter school, for-profit school concept? No. I said, well, let me explain to you. Long story short, we created a for-profit school. We did a business plan. We needed 75 students on day one to turn cash flow positive. Well, 200 students applied. Been cash flow positive from day one, okay, 12 years ago. Today they have 40 teachers and 600 students. So this is how you empower people. You just get them started and empower them. And then you know what? There's people that can... that. that that make money in those countries. They can pay for an education, especially the, the Buddhist general's kids, wealthy people, the Muslim business people's kids. And what that does is that subsidizes the scholarships for the poor Christian kids so they can also get a, a great education. Well, I can just go on and on about that story. Then there's the, uh, the social. That's the third category we're talking about helping people, like medical help and an orphanage. Why do we have to help people in, in poorer countries? Well, the, number one, the government services are so lacking. Uh, the governments don't, are not set up like we have here. We have a social network to fall back on. Uh, they don't have that in many places. Uh, so when disaster comes, like I came in southern Burma years ago, uh, a tsunami came in, a tidal wave, and in one day came in and killed 136,000 people. Can you imagine that? 
136,000, most of the parents got washed out the sea. We had, we had to take 34 of our churches, our Baptist churches, and turn them into orphanages overnight. That's a disaster. You got to help them out. The problem is this, the, all the development aid coming in had to go through the generals. And then the generals acted like they were given the aid. And by the way, they took a big cut. So what we did is we sent money into our partners there and said, you go on a local market and you buy stuff for relief and help those people in those 34 churches. And that's how we did it. Now there's been a part of my ministry where I had this help meet who had this burden for social help, particularly women at risk and in need. And it got to the point where she, a few years back, maybe 12, 13 years back, or she started doing this, working with uh, wounded women around the world, that I could see the handwriting on the wall. This is before anybody heard about human trafficking. We were at church in Chicago, and we're, we're there, and we, had, we both were sharing the Sunday school hour. I was with the men, adult men, and she was adult women. And as we were finishing up and coming into the worship service, I looked in her room, and there were about 100 ladies, in, and they're all, they're all crying or weeping or tearful, and I thought, oh my goodness, what did she say to these, these women that got them so upset? So we come in before the worship service starts, and she sits next to me, and she goes, I said to her, what did you say to them that got them so upset? And she goes, oh, I was just telling about the needs around the world, how women are so mistreated and abused, and, and uh, they just, they, just are, 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 they, they feel for that. And I go, oh my goodness, this is one church. America has 100,000 churches. I'm thinking, there's no way. This word gets out. We're not ready for this. We're not ready for this. I said, you, you know, I'll help you plan this, but I'm basically putting you on a limb, girl, and I'm sawing you off. The good news, I'll be with you flying down, but we've got to do something else because I can't. My ministry won't be able to contain this because her ministry now is 10 times bigger than mine. Most of my work's overseas. She, she will tell you about how she imports stuff from all these partners overseas here in Salisbury States, and you ladies know about that. You've had parties here. Um, I'd have to say, the last 12 years watching women at risk, guys, I'm here to tell you, when women get behind a cause, look out. I mean, it's just been an amazing rocket ride these last 12 years. And then when I talk about the fourth category. We talked about the spiritual. We talked about the intellectual. We talked about the social and why that's important. You look for needs of that. The missing link in a lot of places of ministry around the world is the economics. Eh, clergy really don't talk about economics and business because we're not really trained for that, right? And I just told you about this dirty little seeker, this giant welfare system. How do we get people weaned off of outside money? I told you about that school we started, now has 600 students and 40 teachers, right? The first year, that school showed a profit of $20,000. Now, give an example. The wives of the two men that I had as students that were starting this school, their families only made $75 a month. So now they're part of the school they're building that made the first year made a $20,000 a year profit. And they said, what should we do with this money? And we said, what do you think we should do with this money? They said, we think we should tithe it. We know we need to have money 
to be reinvest so we can build a school because we're going to have to add teachers. And, right? So we thought 10%. We would, we would tithe 10%. That's $2,000. Well, what are you going to do with $2,000? Well, Bible College had been getting money from an American mission for years, every month. And five months ago, the mission just stopped it. And the professors hadn't been paid in five months. And guess what? It was around Christmas time. What the shortfall was in the professor's salary was $2,000, which was their tithe. So they decided that year to give it to the Bible college so the professors get paid. And you know the dignity that came with that? They earned that money. It wasn't given to them. They weren't dependent on somebody from the outside. And they've been given to ministries ever since as the school grown, has grown. Nobody likes a handout. It's, it's, man. Imagine if your church was poor. And there was a church, let's say, in England or France or, or Netherlands or somewhere, and they were sending you money every month, and that was paying your pastor's salary. And if you had problems in your church, and you didn't like your pastor or assistant pastor or whatever, or your leaders, and they could say, well, we don't care what you think because we get our money from outside, don't we? You don't pay our salary. That happens a thousand times a day around the world right now, where churches and ministries overseas are dependent on outside funds. There's no accountability. When you're giving out your own tithe and you're giving to this church, there's accountability. Pastors can't say, oh, I don't feel like preaching today. I'm not going to come. It's his job to come, right? So that we've had to deal with this. This is one of the problems missionaries have to deal with overseas is that dependence on outside money. I'm working with a group right now in Africa. The American missionaries are realizing, oh, we're the last ones here. We're going to retire. And for years, we've been supporting all these ministries and all this money. And once we retire, we won't have the money to give, and everything's just going to collapse. It's out of desperation. they got one term left. They called me and said, will you help us make us financially independent out here so when we retire, we don't feel horrible that we've left these people in the lurch? I said, absolutely. So we're working on, working on a plantation plan now. Uh, macadamia nuts, another tree farm. We did a rubber plantation 15 years ago in northern Burma. Uh, the main estate had 8,000 trees we planted. It took years. It takes seven years for a rubber tree to, to grow, to maturity to start producing the latex. Today, we have 8,000 trees on the main estate. We've got a smaller farm that's got 2,000. We've got 10,000 rubber trees that are producing latex. I joke and say the latex is going, that rubber is going into plastic gloves to help fight COVID, uh, surgical gloves. But really, uh, depending on the year and, uh, and the price of rubber, that plantation produces tens of thousands of dollars that supports a Bible college, that same Bible college I was telling you about, an orphanage, the, the mission headquarters staff, because they have a faith promise in all their 150 poor village churches, they can't raise enough money to send in. They're short and they're, they're, their leaders can't get paid. Uh, they support a mission agency. Now they're sending their own missionaries into China with money from the rubber plantation that they earned. That's the value of financial independence. The dignity that comes with that. There's no jealousy there. It's all up to them now. And then something happened that just blew me away. 
I get a phone call one day, about four or five years ago. We had bought some property originally years ago to build a printing press. And we were going to publish, do commercial printing. We were also going to publish Bibles. And it was just too hot. It was just too difficult, too dangerous. Uh, the government would have come in and put our guys in prison, would have taken over. So we decided, since we're going to property, let's build some storefronts. And the bottom floor will be storefronts, and the top floor is actually the offices for a church association, right? About $90,000 to do all that. Four years ago, I get this phone call and said, you're not going to believe it. Are you sitting down? I said, yeah. This is from my colleague. He says, uh, I just found out they sold that piece of property for $1.3 million. I said, you usually mean 1.3 million jots. That's their local currency. No, no, the dollars. Chinese investors are coming across the border, and they're buying up everything they can. And you know, some of our church leaders are upset that they sold it because, you know, today, four years later, it's now worth $3.5 million, that same property, because of the asset appreciation, the property appreciation going up. It's like, wow. So they really don't, need our money anymore. First thing they did is they went out and bought 50 acres outside of town, edge of town, for $700,000. The next week they were offered $2 million for it, and they said, nope, the 50 acres is for ministry. For our children and grandchildren's generations, they have a place they can do ministry. And if they sell off a little bit of it to support the ministry, they're financially independent. That's the whole point about sustainable development. Now, this isn't sustainable development I'm telling you about. This case study is actually growth development. And I said, you guys have more money than we do. That's fantastic. Now you're stewards. Now you got the responsibility of what you're going to do with it. So now we have a whole new set of problems. We had originally poor people dependent on outside funds. Now we have a church association worth millions of dollars. Isn't that fun? I could spend an hour talking about that. What we do is we come alongside, we're facilitators, coaches, mentors. Uh, we help them, because they're not used to this kind of money. Most Americans aren't used to that kind of money. That's just a, a huge blessing. Well, one of the problems we have when you do this, when you're starting out a business, you kind of you don't want to put yourself right out there. So you usually rent a piece of property, and then you start the business, and it's successful. You know the problem we've had? Greedy landlords. The landlord's going, oh, look at these Christians. They're making a lot of money. Uh, see, the two things happen. Either they raise the rent, right? Or they, they don't renew the lease, and then they move in and try to do the same business, the same business model. The last 15 years, we're looking at that. We're going, I, my last board meeting, I said, you know, we need to buy land. Our people need to own their own property so they're not caught always with these landlords. And if they're a Muslim or a Buddhist landlord who aren't Christian, or even Christian landlords who are greedy, that doesn't really help us. We need to help our people own their own land. And that's kind of our thrust now as the next few years. In fact, we're looking at four big projects, India, Burma, uh, Bangladesh and, and Zambia right now of doing large projects where people are going to own the land. The ministry is going to own the land so they don't get caught with the greedy landlord problem. I never thought I'd see the day we'd have that problem, but we do.
Well, as we think about 1 Thessalonians 4, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business. Don't be busybodies. Work with your own hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, that you will not be dependent on anybody. It doesn't, we're, we're not batting a thousand. We don't have 100% success rate. We have about a 90% success rate. It's not because of our brilliant business thinking or business models or the fact that there's a, a great need that's not being filled, which does help. If you're the first in the market, uh, you have a lot more flexibility, you have a lot more risk, too. Um, we, we see that sometimes we make mistakes. And I'm here to tell you we're not perfect. Uh, but they've been minimal, and we've learned the hard way. Uh, one thing that's really, really surprised me, Bangladesh being one of the second poorest country in the world after Haiti. Haiti's the poorest country in the world. Bangladesh is the second. You've got 160 million people. That's like taking half the United States population and put it in the state of Wisconsin. That's the population density. It's, there are just people everywhere. 160 million people. We're the size of Michigan. What do we have, 10, 12 million? Imagine if half the United States moved into Michigan right now. That's the population density they have. Land is very expensive. But one interesting thing was, Dr. Shirkar, who's been getting donations for years, I kept saying, I said, John, someday, something's going to happen. And the churches in America are going to stop sending you money. And you'll be cut off. I, have, I saw it happen in Burma at that Bible college. And you cut off. He has all the staff. He has, he has 15 schools and he has 26 churches. And now, unfortunately, the churches, they say they have to be indigenous, they have to be independent. After two years, he's going to pay the church planner salary for two years. And after that, they're on their own. And it works. That's a very motivating force. When people get saved and they say, the Pastor, how, how do you get paid? Well, I get paid here, but I'm really supposed to be paid by the church. And then he teaches on tithing and stuff. And, you know, they start tithing, and boom, they're an independent church. I could never really get him to understand the value of sustainable development. You can make money even in the second poorest country in the world. There's possibilities of making money. He goes, well, you know, my, my nephew has a few dairy cows, and he makes really good money. I said, no, how much money does he make? Oh. He says, well, let me call him. We're sitting in his office in Chittagong. He calls his nephew in a different city in Bangladesh. He says, I had all these questions for him. Okay, um, what are your costs for expenses, monthly expenses? What do you make in profit? And he knew right offhand. He said, oh, I'm making about $1,000 a month profit. I go, what? $1,000? How many cows do you have? He says, I have uh, four. I said, John, I said, isn't he living right up there with that, where we have that big retreat center and we have the, the compound where we have these people come, 50 people came to Christ last year? He goes, yeah, that's where he lives. He just needs a barn. He needs a bigger barn. Oh, we can help with that. What about how big a herd would he need? He says, well, he would like a bigger herd. So we decided to buy some more dairy cows uh, two years ago. I get this email from John like three weeks ago. He says, Michael is so happy with the cows you bought. They're making so much money. He gives so much money to the church. In fact, 
said, I think he gives all the money to the church. <laughs> He's a single guy. He's not married, and he just takes care of his dairy cows. I went to walk to this dairy barn, and I, I tell you what, I've been, I grew up in the Midwest. I know what a dairy barn smells like. You couldn't smell a thing. I mean, there was no manure on this concrete floor. They wash these cows twice a day. I mean, it's just like, they're like their babies or something. It's just like unbelievable. And they, no marketing involved. And it's not sold to consumers. He sells his milk to uh, bakeries and pastry shops because there's demand for full cream milk. And they know when milking time is, and they show up at his door, and he just takes the milk from the cow, puts it in a container, sells them, making $4 a gallon. That's, a, that's what we call a, a high-margin business. He's making money. So this year, he actually, uh, John's caught the vision. He goes, my other church planters need cows like this. They do. Let the churches have their own cows and support it. That way, they're not dependent on you because you're dependent on funds from America. That's the whole point of this. Now, it's okay to take donations. Apostle Paul was a tent maker, and he ex- accepted donations. Okay, but the Apostle Paul wasn't totally dependent on donations. That, that was the key, and I think that's quite biblical. Well, I'm running out of time. I can tell you stories all day. Uh, Rebecca and I have lived an unreal life. There's no question about it. Uh, we both have been through 80, I've been through 85 countries. She's been through 86. I've worked in 38. I don't know how many she's worked in. She's got partners all over the world. She'll tell you about that next. Um, It's not our calling. You know, after I finished my doctorate, I had offers to work for the State Department and the World Bank. And that just didn't, it wasn't my calling. I want to help people, the grassroots people, the local level, the nationals, people who are poor. How can we empower them? Give them education. Give them training on how to run a business. Let them earn their own money so they're not dependent on outsiders. And that's beginning to work now. It's been about 10 or 12 years we've done this. You know, we didn't set out to change the world. We actually, we did thought when we were young, we set out to change the world, but you know what happened? The world changed us. Our amazing field partners changed us. The suffering we see, we go through. Like this, I heard about this Bangladesh woman who uh, Dr. John gave a cow to, a Holstein cow, and now she makes $2.50 a day. Five liters of milk, one liter quart, goes for her kids, and she sells four liters, which is a gallon. And she is so thrilled to be making $2.50 a day. You know why? Because half the world, 90% of sub-Saharan Africa, live on less than a dollar a day. That's how poor they are. And you say, well, their standard of living is a lot lower. Oh, yeah, that's a lot lower. A dollar a day, that's, that's right on the brink, I'm telling you. Anything happens, that cow dies... People die. That's what happens in a country like Bangladesh. Henry David Thoreau once said, we took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. And that's, that's been the road we've traveled. Now, we couldn't have done it without churches like you, frankly. You can have a billion dollars, and if you don't have the right people and the right prayer base behind you, spiritually it doesn't mean anything. What moves the hand of God is prayers. Your prayers here in this church for us and our ministries are worth more than a billion dollars, billions of dollars, because why? I'll tell you right now, God's worth more than a trillion dollars. 
He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, which is basically a metaphor for all the hills. Someday we're going to have this gigantic reunion in heaven. Now, I've been telling you stories about these people, but you haven't met. Someday you're going to meet them. They can tell you from their own mouth what the Lord has done because you prayed for them back here. They're in countries like Bangladesh where less than 1% of the population are Christian. They are the minority of minorities. They get persecuted. They get beat up. They get taunted every day in the marketplace. Are you Christians? Someday we're going to come get you. We're going to get you. They live under this oppression all this time just for their faith. Pray for the persecuted church. Pray for our, pray for our leaders. You know how discouraging this time is right now over there where they have people starving to death in their church and they can't do anything about it. So thank you for praying for us, supporting for us, pay for their own ministry growth, and not be dependent on anybody. Why? So we respect, get the respect of outsiders. You know what happened when we started that school with 600 students and 40, 40 teachers? Because the power elite's kids were now going to school, the persecution from the government virtually stopped. Leave those Christians alone. They're educating our kids. Makes sense, right? The power of sustainable development for ministry. And guess what? Those Buddhist and Muslim kids are hearing the gospel every day at school. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for what you're doing around the world. And thank you for this church, their faithfulness, and even this difficult time this year. We're so proud of them showing up for church. They're being responsible and loving your work. Thank you for them, in Christ's name.